Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you. Just so you know, we've installed a peep detector. If you peep while praying, it picks it up. <laughs> kidding. Kidding. It does not be sick. <laughs> this morning, we are in the book of Acts, chapter 7. And it's a long chapter. Those of you familiar with it will know. And we will stand in a moment, and we will take, we'll, we're going to look at verses 1 through 50. That's the goal. But we'll stand and read verse 35. And aren't you glad? So, if you have your Bibles, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 7, verse 35. <clears throat> this Moses, whom they rejected, saying... Who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Please be seated. What makes that verse stand out is um, found perhaps in the title of this morning's consideration, Rejection Galore. That's what we are going to look at. However, I felt God leading me to say some things that need to be said, and uh, that's going to take up the first portion of this morning's consideration. And then rather than doing a more in-depth analysis of verse by verse, we will do um, a summary, paragraph by paragraph, because the chapter is so long and the material, if we were to go in-depth, we'd be in this chapter for a long time. We are surprised to find in the history of the Jewish people an abundance of rejection against God, against his, his prophets. And this is what Stephen is going to bring out. And this is not an assault on the Jewish people, because when you get to the Gentiles in the church, you've got their own problems. It is an assault on sin, what sin does to any people. Whether they're called by God or not, sin is constantly at work. Stephen exposes their error through their history. It's not a motivational speech that he's giving them. Christians are to point out the way of the Lord in the land of the lost. That is one of our directives from the Lord. Go into the world and make disciples. Well, if you're going to make disciples, you're going to have to point out that they're sinners and that God saves sinners. Pep talk sermons hinder the truth. I mean, this is a time to encourage for sure. That is a part of preaching, is a part of Christianity. The Bible intends to shape our understanding of God, of mankind, of life, and of ourselves. You see, we can get theological, so it's God, it's life, it's mankind, and leave ourselves out. But no, it goes right at us. What makes me stronger? Well, the Bible will tell me that. What makes me weaker? It's included in there. What helps me to serve? What keeps me from serving? You may have a broken heart. You may have a broken heart right now. I'm not talking about a season of mourning for some great loss. We have those seasons in life, and, and those do sit us down for a while until God does his work through time. But there are times in life that we have a broken heart, a heavy heart. We hurt. We have broken hearts without broken hands. The Bible teaches this. Hosea the prophet was not excused from ministry because his married life was in shambles. As a matter of fact, God used his broken heart to write scripture with unbroken hands. These are hard lessons, but they're valuable. They're vital. And I think we miss these through the pep talks from sermons. God used that broken man in a mighty way. A pastor can mean well, but misuse the pulpit. Well, there's a lot of ways he can do that. I don't know from experience, but I've heard. <laughs> by losing opportunities. He can misuse the pulpit by, by missing opportunities that God has given. We have a proverb, not a biblical proverb. It's just a, a folk proverb. Proverb, and it's a good one. Don't preach to the choir. Oh, you're preaching to the choir. 
which means you're telling us something we already know and we agree with. You're not doing anything for us. We're just all sitting there nodding our heads, yeah. And Sunday after Sunday, as I'm standing here, there are churches where the pastors are in the pulpits. They're telling, preaching to congregations that are already saved. And they're preaching messages of salvation to the saved. Hoping that maybe somebody will walk in off the street or something that's not saved. Then there are those sermons, and I'm, I'm not being too critical. I'm saying this goes on. All of us have to watch for it. There is a time to preach for the lost, but that cannot dominate what's coming from the pulpit, the message of God. There are those sermons that are bandage atop of bandage, always preaching, oh, life hurts, but you'll be better. It's going to be okay. And just put a bandage on this and a bandage on that. If you put enough bandages on someone, you end up with a mummy. And we don't want that. What the Bible teaches is to convince, including convict, to correct, and to cheer. Those three C's are found in the scripture. The words, it doesn't have to be identical. The meaning is there. The fact is there. These are all covered. When the Apostle Paul told Titus, hey, you need to get some pastors there who will hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort, that's cheering, and convict, that is, of course, correction, and convincing those who contradict. To Timothy, he said, preach the word in season and out of season. In other words, preach all the time. But what? Well, he continues. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. These are our instructions from Scripture on how to handle the pulpit with the assembly. It is for the flock to arm you, to send you out, brokenhearted or not. We are supposed to be about our Father's business. You, what, if, what if pastors only went into the pulpit when things were going well in their lives? You wouldn't have many pastors in pulpits. How many times have I been up here with things hurting my, breaking my heart in my life that I have to just bypass and do my duty. Stephen's sermon does all three. He is going to convict them and correct them and cheer them on. Now, what they do with it is another story because they receive none of it. Not immediately, at least. And so we are going to summarize his summary of Israel's history of their abundant rejection of God's prophets and God's people. And that helps me when I want to share my faith. He points out that they have a long history of getting it wrong and using their Bibles to do it. It's powerful. He's, he is using the scripture to correct them. That validates everything he is saying. That makes it authentic. Bottom line, that Jesus is Messiah. And he'll talk about Abraham. He'll talk about Joseph and Moses, the wilderness experience, and their beloved temple. And then he will get them right between the eyes before they kill him. We won't get to that part. We'll look at what got him there at verse 1. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? Well, that goes back to... Verse 10 of chapter 6, and there they, they could not withstand Stephen. They could not refute him in discussing spiritual things from the Scripture. He won all the arguments, and so they said, we're going to sue him. That's what we'll do, and then we, this is a practice to this day with mean-spirited people. And they charged him with speaking against the temple and speaking against the law, blasphemous charges that they were putting on him. And so he's asked, how do you plea? <laughs> They're going to hear him out because they want to bust him. They want to catch him, say the wrong thing. That's why they're letting him give us this long sermon. His association with Jesus had already agitated them to the point where their minds were closed because they had closed their minds to Jesus because they have a history of rejecting who God sends, in spite of the evidences, the signs, the wonders, the teachings, the, the righteousness. Rejection galore belongs to the human experience, not just the Jewish people. By any means, does it belong to any single people? 
it is for mankind. And so they thought that they were there to judge him. There they are, lined up in front of Stephen like potted plants. He sees the opportunity. He's not going to let this slip through his fingers. He's not going to miss this opportunity. Jesus said, they will lay hands on you, persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an opportunity for testimony. Your heart broken because you're stuck in jail and you can't get out and take care of your family? You will have a chance to preach. At no time is Stephen apologetic. At no point is he on defense. From the moment he opens his mouth, he is charging straight up the hill with truth. And they can't stop him. That's why they kill him. So masterful is his assault that they don't know they're being attacked until their position is completely overrun. It is a magnificent approach. He just tells the truth. That's all he has to do. He doesn't have to sit down and create some clever poem or come up with a catchy story. He just tells the truth from the scripture. That's all he has to do. It is a heroic assault. And it finishes with a gotcha on Israel, on those that are judging him. He, in the end, says to them, I got you. God has got you. Exposing them for always resisting the Holy Spirit. That's what he says to them. Which of the prophets you guys not killed? Oh, man, Stephen is just, um, he's magnificent. And then he goes on to tell them, you murdered the righteous one. And they, there was nothing they could say. We learn to preach from these things. Saul of Tarsus is present, listening to every word, staring at that angelic faith, face, theologically being destroyed, but unable to admit it. He can't even, Paul, he's not Paul yet. He still goes by the name Saul of Tarsus. He is part of the Sanhedrin, more than likely. He certainly is a Pharisee. He's a big shot. He will receive authority to prosecute the Christians. And he is there for this, and he has no defense to everything he hears, and it still isn't enough to make him repent. Have you preached to somebody a solid preaching where they could not argue, and yet they don't come to Christ still? Now we look at verse 2. We'll have to take the whole paragraph again because we'll be here if we went verse by verse for a long time. Uh, I mean, weeks. And he said, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, verse 3, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, nor even enough to set foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way. That his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. That nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. Now, he's going back to a time before they had this law of Moses that they're charging him with, of course, blasphemy. This is before the temple was built, the tabernacle was given, the Ark of the Covenant. He goes way back. At the time that he's saying this, he says, Judah has the temple. It has the rituals and the law and the priesthood, but they don't have the Lord. That is where this is going. Christianity has returned to that original state without the temple, without the ritual, 
We have the Lord. He is the substance of things hoped for. He is it. We have Messiah. And Stephen is saying this to them. Christianity functions well without rituals because it has Jesus. It has God the Son. It has God the Holy Spirit and God the Father. How would you illustrate to a child or an adult the Trinity that there are three, there's one person with three personalities? A triangle does well. Each, tri- each triangle has three, cor- has three corners. Each one is dis- distinct from the other, yet all belonging to the same, inseparable. You can't separate them. You won't have a triangle anymore. Each has a role. It is God's way of showing himself and interacting with humanity. And if God has not done that, it would be so much we would not know about him. And it has been so useful to God for us to understand where he is going with things. So here, Stephen is sidestepping the plea. He's not entering a plea. He's not saying guilty. He's not saying innocent. He said, I'm going to preach to you guys. I got you here. You're going to get it. And so this is an expositional sermon, beginning with Genesis 12, and then going through to Kings. And he makes it clear that his God is the same God as Abraham's, as Isaac, as Jacob their God. He wants no confusion about this. Identity is critical. So often Christians don't know who they are. So they keep looking to the world. How should we behave? What should we do next? How should we live? Have an identity problem. These Jews knew their history as well as Stephen. They just didn't know how to apply it. What good? What good is having an oar in the boat if you don't know how to row? He's trying to help them with this. They will hate his guts for it. They will kill him and go off smug and satisfied that they're serving God. Jesus warned about that. He said, they're going to think they're doing God service by killing you because they're not listening. They have a history of not listening. They have, and because they don't listen, they reject And so he begins with the father of their faith amongst the Jews, Abraham, pointing to the separation that began it all. Israel's patriarch furthered his walk with God by ending his walk with those who had wronged gods, and they happened to be his own family, his father, his relatives. God points that out. Abraham, get out from your father's house and your relatives. And Abraham dragged his feet a little bit to do that, but he did do it. In fact, we have no mention of Abraham building altars to the Lord until he was separated and into the promised land where God had called him. How many lessons are in that? God's word came to Abraham. He obeyed it. Worship was hindered by his ties to unbelievers. And we have listen. We have to have contact with unbelievers and be kind and loving as best we can. As uh, Tozer said, we have to have contact without merging. We don't get too close. We have to understand their identity versus ours. Fraternizing with the enemy is a serious thing. More serious is if you get too close to the world, they'll suck you back in. That's how backsliders and apostates become backsliders, and apostates. a serious business. We learn that from Abraham. God said, I need to get you away from them. They've got raggedy gods. They're fake. You have the real God, the truth. And I need you to get away from that leaven, that influence. And again, not until we know who we are as Christians does true evangelism start to happen in our lives. Identity, obedience, worship, service, in that order. Because if you don't know who you are, how do you know who to obey? And if you don't obey, how can you worship? And if you can't worship, how are you going to serve? Things mean something. Now, you teens, you're expected to keep up. Don't be looking for us to slow it down and start talking to you in baby talk so you can get it. Because we don't see you as babies. We see you as adults in in the making. Now is the time. Write things down. Look them up. 
Read the section before you get to church. Stay ahead of the game. Apply yourselves. Or do nothing and then sit there the whole time and wonder when the service is going to be over. Your choice. But I will add this. Just as there were Jews who understood who Jesus was and they submitted to him, there are teens who can follow, who can keep up and grow stronger. And many of them are now men and women in this church with their own families serving in this church. And they were sitting in the pew just like you. So it is doable. Men like rivers are crooked because they follow the paths of least resistance. Well, that's a true proverb. That's a true parallel fact. Make the most out of it. Squeeze out of it as much as you can get. And then do something with it. Who wants to spend four or six years going to get a master's degree, for example, and then do nothing with it? You want to use it. You want to say, I, you know, I, I didn't invest myself in this just to lose it. Now, unfortunately, you can get a master's degree in some silly things. And that are useless. And should, I mean, we take a course in, I don't know, making Cheerios or something. Uh, well, maybe that's a good one. Let's uh, come up with something else. Anyway, especially the honey nut ones, right? Uh, all right. It should have a law in the land. No talking about food on a morning service. Verse 9. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles, and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Okay, I have to stop there, because that whole thing about uh, Jacob, uh, Joseph being sold as a slave, they were going to kill him. That was plan B. (laughs) He became a slave. And it says God was with him. I would be like, where's God? My own brothers sold me into sin. Uh, Not sin, slavery. Where is God? Well, anyway, back to this. Verse 11. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he he sent out our fathers first. Verse 13. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. Verse 15, so Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of of Shechem. And so he's uh, going over their history, and what he's pointing out here, and this is important, that Joseph came to his brothers the first time and they rejected him. And where he's going with this, Jesus came to you the first time and you rejected him. The next time Jesus comes, you won't be rejecting him. The second time that they get in front of Joseph, they did not reject. You know, it started out Joseph said, Hey, I had a dream. And my sheaf, my collection of, you know, grain, it just uh, was there, and yours bowed down to mine. I mean, he was very naive. I mean, Joseph was not the sharpest knife in the drawer when it came to dealing with people who might envy him and hate him for what he was saying. Because what he was saying is, I'm going to rise over you, you're going to bow down to me. And, of course, the Bible says they hated him for that. Seventeen years later, there they were, bowing down to Joseph. And this is what Stephen is trying to say. They got it wrong. Joseph was the deliverer. And they didn't see it coming because they don't listen to what God is doing. That's why God spoke to Joseph and not them. When Jesus came the first time, as I said, they rejected him too. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David. And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. And then Paul quoting Isaiah, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. And so Stephen, giving them their own history, 
telling them they get it wrong and now is the time to stop, telling them that they have a habit of excusing themselves because of religious ritual and religious zeal and are blind to their own scriptures in the process. You know, here's a proverb-type morning, not biblical proverbs. You know, they, they throw out the baby and keep the bath water. It's kind of gross, but it makes the point. As to the patriarchs rejecting Joseph, the Sanhedrin rejecting Jesus. Same reason, envy. We're told that in Matthew 27, 18. They envied him. They envied the people who were coming out. They were listening to Jesus. They were attracted to Christ. What did Christ do when he starts early in his sermons and his public ministry? That Sermon on the Mount, he just cuts, he just cuts them open. Points out all their things. Tells the people, unless you do better than your pastors, you can't get to heaven. Because these pastors are so messed up, they're not going there. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's how he told it. And they are on their side. Well, he didn't bow down to us. He's not recognizing us. Look at our robes. I mean, is anybody cooler than us? Look at this big hat I've got on my head. A little problem when I get into a car, but it's still nice. It says God was with him. God is with every Christian. You look at the life of, jo- life of Joseph and you say, did Joseph have a time where he could complain and doubt God? Oh, he had a whole bunch. Of, he had years of it. Seventeen of them. Almost. John chapter 8. Jesus said, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. God was with Jesus too. Stephen's pointing it out. And the day came, of course, as when the, the, the brothers confessed their sin. But these, these potted plants in front of Stephen, they're not confessing their sin. They're escalating their sins. They're going to notch it up. And Joseph revealed himself, Genesis 42. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. That was right before Joseph let him him know it was him. Well, anyway, back to this. The anguish of his soul. That's what Joseph endured for his God. And we never read about Joseph complaining, doubting God. Me, I'm, I'm in traffic. A long line in the store gets me upset. Lord, where are you? I can't believe it. Well, okay, it's not that bad, but maybe it is for you because you might not be as righteous as me. <laughs> Verse 17. <laughs> Imagine somebody being that stupid to believe that. I mean, anyway. Verse 17. But when the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. I feel like I'm reading a book to you. You know, you see people with the things and they're listening to a book. What are you doing listening to a book? That's cheating. You can't be reading, listening to books. You've got to read them. All right, back to this. It's not cheating. They're bookworms, they're tapeworms. It's that simple. Till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers. That's not one, two, three, four of them. <laughs> making them expose their babies so that they might not live. Uh, Today, they abort them. That's what they call it. That's not what it is. Uh, So this religion of Molech worship is still happening under the name of liberalism and a woman's right to kill the unborn. It's because they do not believe life starts at conception. We're supposed to help them when life begins. Uh, don't, they might want to end your life for telling them that they're so passionate about this. It's Satan. Satan has got them. <clears throat> All right, I've gone down a little rabbit trail. Verse 20, because we're going to come to that in a moment. We just did, in fact, with uh, Pharaoh wanting to kill all the male children from, of the Jews. Verse 20, at this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up to her own, up, up as her own son. Okay, the Bible says Moses was a beautiful baby, which makes you say, what are you saying, Lord? Are the other ones ugly? And they aren't really, no, well, all of them are ugly when they first come out. I know you ladies don't agree with that, but we men know better. 
<clears throat> of course, David is just so cute, right? Well, what does it mean that he was a beautiful baby? His cuteness was irresistible. And so his mom says, no way I'm going to do this child in. And then when Pharaoh's daughter sees him, she says, his cuteness is irresistible. And she takes him in as her own. And so sort of like, you know, a miracle of cuteness uh, that uh, God performed on Moses. Verse, verse 22. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing, verse 24, one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who oppressed, who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Verse 25 now, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? Verse 27, But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? (laughs) Who died and left you the boss is what he's asking. Verse 28, do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. Well, he couldn't do anything right in ministry. He couldn't bury a body and get away with it. This is a practice that we are all susceptible to, serving God without being sent by God. Moses was going to deliver his people. He felt that I'm here now and I'm going to change things. Moses put himself in the midst of a fight that God did not call him to, and it was a disaster. Great lessons. But where Stephen is going is Moses was rejected by the Jews on his first visit to his people. He tried to break up a fight between two Jewish people, and they rejected him, at least the one, the one with the, the smart aleck one. you got to wonder, was that guy still alive and with the Jews when they left Egypt and Moses leading them out? Uh, there's a, enough time for it to happen. Anyway, uh, you can reference John 1, verse 11, and Jesus says, he, John writes, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Uh, the Gentiles, in chapter 13, When Paul was rejected at the synagogue, the Gentiles said, come tell us. Well, funny thing about Moses, his people reject him when he first came. Where where does he flee to? He flees to the desert, and he ends up at the house of Jethro, a Gentile. Now, Stephen doesn't see the church going in that direction. None of them do, not yet. That won't happen till later. And it will be a tough transition. But it's here. Uh, Just so much to teach us from the Bible, about how to be Christians. We look at the first Christians because they got it right overall. Well, Sapphire and Ananias didn't get it right. But, of course, that's not uh, our model. Verse 30. And when the 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord... Now, that's, that's Bible talk for a theophany. He's talking about the burning bush. Appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. In other words, it's God using a created instrument to, uh, in, to speak to man. The cloud that followed them in the daytime, the Shekinah, and then the fire at night, those are, are uh, theophanies, uh, manifestations of God in a, created, in a created item. A Christophany is when God does it in human form. as when, uh, for example... Um, they came to visit with Abraham, the three, the two angels, and the Lord. Or when they visited with Samson's parents. Verse 31, when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight as he drew near to observe. The voice of the Lord came to him. Verse 32, saying, I am God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dare not look. Then Yahweh said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. This is big. Now, they're listening again, waiting to bust him, say something wrong. You're listening, and if you're a Christian, you're enjoying the recap. 
They're not thinking it that, going, approaching it that way. But this is holiness. Listen to this. God said to, in, in Exodus 3, 5, the section he's quoting from, God said to Moses, do not draw near. Then God says at the same time, and this is grace, the place where you stand is holy. Don't come near, but you stand in holy ground. That's, that's amazing. That's holiness. You can go but so far, and it's grace, but you can come close enough. And in that place that you come to where God is, is pure. Moses had to learn what it meant to stand in the presence of a holy God. You just can't sashay on up to God like it's a, hey, buddy, what's up? Maybe if you make up a God, you can do that, but not a holy and awesome God. Well, if Moses had to learn to not be presumptuous, if Moses had to be taught by God how to approach God, so does everybody else. That's why we read about Abraham on his face before the Lord, speaking to him. Verse 34, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come... I will send you to Egypt, verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Verse 36, he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness. 40 years. So added to Joseph coming and being rejected the first time by his brethren is Moses. He comes along and he's rejected the first time by his brethren. Christ's name is added to that. All three were rejected the first time they came to the people. All three were sent to the people by God. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Why didn't they see that when Christ walked? What was the charge against him? Why can't he be the Messiah? Look at the miracles he's doing. Well, their criteria was, well, he's got to like us. If he's going to be Messiah, he's got to recognize who we are. Well, he didn't do that. He recognized who they were, but in the negative. Verse 37, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, Yahweh your God will rise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. Well, we covered this last session. We covered it in chapter 3 when Peter first brought this up, pointing to this verse as the authority of Scripture to recognize who Christ was. Jesus said this, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And then he goes on to say there in John chapter 5, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Jesus is owning that verse. But they would have none of that. Their minds were closed. Well, it's, there are times when the mind should be closed. Straight is the way, narrow is the gate. There are wicked things that we are to close our minds to if we can but when it comes to truth and fact, we have to be open to these things. Pilate did not even want to entertain it. Now, what is truth? And he didn't give Christ a chance to answer and say, you're looking at the truth. You're looking at the way and the life. Verse 38, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us whom our fathers would not obey, verse 39, but rejected, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to where God delivered them from. That's part of it. Verse 40, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. That's why those gods are raggedy, because they're made by man. This, uh, the, this um, whole thing is so much to comment on. I'm, I'm, I'm reading. 
I'll be back. <laughs> so, so they tell Aaron, of course, can you make a representation of God? We, we need a visible God. This whole faith thing is too much. We need to see. The Egyptians get to see what they're doing. The other peoples, we want one also. And, of course, Aaron with the, one of the greatest lies in the Bible. I just threw this stuff in the fire. Poof, out came this golden calf. It's like, are you kidding me? You're the assistant pastor. How, did, how could you even say such a thing? And, and Moses just he ignores it because it's so ridiculous. What's he going to do? either kill him or forgive him and, or, and move forward. And, and that's pretty much what happened. Anyway, an amazing part of the Bible and true story. Uh, and so the resistance, again, Galos even says, it's your favorite reaction to God's grace to resist it. It's the favorite thing you love to do. How, have you? Isaiah says, show kindness to a wicked person and they'll still be wicked. They're not going to appreciate it. How many times have you, do you show kindness to somebody for them to bite you? Um, I wish that God put some, you know, little clauses in. Okay, you should turn the other cheek, but <laughs> that would have been nice. But he didn't do it. How about that? Anyway, if they had stumbled so many times in sin against God with idolatry, it's almost boring. If the angels, if it wasn't such a high crime, could you imagine an angel, hey, did you see that they started to make idols over here too? And the other angel saying, yeah, tell me something new. Boring. I think we can, it's, it's not to the angels because it's the value of it all. But that's how frequent it, it was in their history. And churches are much, diff- aren't much different. It's almost boring when someone says, you know what they're doing at their church now? When someone tells you, gives you the excuses why they don't believe in the Bible, it's almost boring. Like, here we go. Uh, you know, billions and billions and billions of years. Wait a minute. Here are you fretting around. We can't be the only ones in the universe. There has to be, you know, aliens and Martians and such. Why can't we be the only ones? Who's to say this is not the beginning? So later on, the other people can say they went on alone. Well, that's not my point. So all those billions and billions of years ago, everybody was alone. You didn't have a problem with that. Did I lose you on that? I'm just just saying there are some very smart people. Human beings do incredible things. But when it comes to God, they are the dumbest people alive when they have rejected him on this subject. And uh, it's, it's amazing. That's why God says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You have to be a fool to do that. Okay, so you say there is a God. On what basis is your God God? How does your God get to be God? Well, what we have today are all of these written accounts. And none of them have anything within them that would make you say, hey, this, is, this stuff is just as good as Shakespeare's. <laughs> this is good stuff. It's, except the word of God. What makes us different? Well, the fact that reason is one, but the prophecies, you just can't beat the prophecies. God telling the future. Nobody, the Koran has no prophetic. There's nothing in there that's prophetic. Certainly nothing that's come to pass uh, except the violence. Don't, don't, be, don't be intimidated by these things. Oh, no, don't say them. Pick on the people who are, pick on Confucius. He won't hurt you back. But don't mess with the Muslims. We mess with lies, regardless of who they come from, regardless of the consequences. And that's what Stephen is doing. He's standing up to these boys. He's saying, I don't have to take your stuff. I have the same Bible that you have. Well, you're missing the point. And I'm going to show you why you're missing the point. And he's doing it. And he doesn't, he's not giving them, you know, a motivational speech. But you just hang in there. You'll figure it out one day. (laughs) God's got a plan for you. He does have a plan for you. But so does Satan. And it's a sober, the sober mind sees these things. All right, almost done. Verse 42. Then God turned and gave up, gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets. Do you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, did you offer me? Verse 43. You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Remphan, images which you made to worship. 
and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. So now he's quoting the prophet Amos. The Jews counted the 12 minor prophets as one book. And the reason why they put them all in one scroll, and we have them now as the minor prophets, not they they were below age or anything like that, minor in volume compared to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Uh, That's why they're called the minor prophets. And the Jews said, listen, if we take Obadiah, for example, that one small little prophetic word, and we give him a single scroll, we're going to lose it. So let's take all the smaller prophets and let's put them into one scroll, and they became the minor prophets. The others, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, are known as the greater prophets or the latter prophets. And these distinctions are important to us if you want to start digging into how we got our Bible. The deities that Amos is mentioning here and and Stephen is repeating, Moloch and Remphan, uh, included in their worship was child sacrifice. Leviticus uh, 18.21 specifies that about Molech. Uh, So it was then and it is to this very day. Satan comes up with nothing new because he's not creative. And because the things that he did in the past work right now just as good anyway. He doesn't have to think about, hmm, how am I going to take this guy down? It's uh, pretty easy for him if if we're not on guard. So before a sermon, I've got to pray, I've got to study, I've got to chew on these things. What I'm going to say, I've got all this work, not to count my own private walk with Christ. My flesh doesn't have to do any of that. My flesh does not have to pray to get stronger. does not have to study. It does not have to. It's born Superman. It is so corrupted. It is activated instantly. And this is the fight that is worth fighting. And those who don't fight this fight are lost because they don't think it's worth it. We think it's worth it because worthy is the Lamb. That's why we worship him. Well, we'll close this up. Well, where am I here? Well, Paul writing about Gentiles. And even as they did not retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And so that matches the Jews there going back to Molech and and Remphan. Well, so does everybody else. Who is against God? Verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of, the, of witness in the wilderness as he appointed instruction, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. I'm going to pause there. I'm trying to read through the verses a little faster, and it's not easy doing that because if I don't, then you're going to be here an hour and a half. So just look at it this way. He's looking out for us. I guess you're... Verse 45, which our fathers, having received in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, The Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says Yahweh, or what is the place of my rest? Verse 50, has my hand not made these things? God is saying, look, I can make my own temple. I'm the creator. What is, what's going on? He's drawing out of his people what's, what's happening. And he's reminding them at the same time, this is not going to make you righteous. Your heart's got to be right. Your, the heart that is righteous will bring life to the building, not the other way around. Uh, you know, this used to be a grocery store. My office in this area here is in the fruit and nut section. And, and I'm not kidding you. I used to shop here. So... This is more the checkout area, actually. But my office is the fruits and nuts. And so um, whenever people come in, I realize that. <laughs> well, then don't come in. <laughs> no, kidding. Don't get uptight. I love you. It's not as much now. <laughs> kidding. All right. Gee, who said that anyway? No. <laughs> Let's finish this so you can go home and tell me before you get home. 
Jesus, of course, greater than the temple. Matthew 12, 6. Jesus said, one is with you that's greater than the temple. God is not interested in stone buildings when the buildings of souls lie in ruins. Oh, anyway, that's it. Stephen has finished his sermon. Well, almost. Next, he's going to give them the application. And it is going to be scathing. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, this morning, as we have been considering the life and times of your servants that belong to the first church and the opposition they faced, we um, also are mindful that today the same opposition is given against you. And we are here, hopefully, to not apologize for what we believe, to give a defense so much as to tell it like it is. Our hearts may be broken, but there's nothing wrong with our hands, and these hands belong to you to be put to work, to flip through the pages of your word and tell it like it is as best we can, with truth and love. As I've been going through this, I understand, Lord, it is no problem for your Holy Spirit to point out to an unbeliever listening that they too are rejecting you in abundance. That they too have an opportunity to hear the truth and act upon it, as did the audience of Stephen. If you've been listening and you have been siding with Stephen and not with those attacking him for his beliefs in Jesus Christ, but you've not opened your heart, well, open it now. There's nothing that stops you. So open your heart to Christ and confess your sin. Admit that you have broken the law of God, the laws of Christ Jesus. And that to be forgiven, you've got to receive him as Lord and as Savior. If you make this prayer in earnest, God will receive you and your sins will be canceled. At least the penalty for them. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and I ask you to forgive me. I open my heart to you right here, right now, and ask that from this day forward, you would be the one that not only forgives me of my sin, but lords over my life. There's no one else that loves me like you. There's no one else who died for my sin as you did. And there's no one else powerful enough to rise up from the dead and rule. And now, Father, if anyone has opened their heart to you this morning, may they not be ashamed of their confession. May they make it known. With these things we ask you, in Jesus' name, amen.